This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Interior, Jay Cantor's apartment, South Palm Drive, Beverly Hills. Joan and Jennings embrace and just as quickly disperse to opposite ends of the living room. Jennings pours Joan a drink. Walter's become moodier, colder, more menacing. What's the worst you think could happen? Really, could it get any worse? He feels everyone's against him and nothing is going his way. Can you blame him? Well, not a good time to ask for a divorce. Absolutely not. Can I lighten the mood? <laughs> lighten the mood. Rescue a sinking ship is more like it. You're doing just fine helping me keep my family off Skid Row, thank you. Well, another reason Walter wants to kill me. Walter killing you would definitely be the worst thing that could happen. What you just heard is a dramatization of a conversation that may or may not have actually happened. We know now that on December 13, 1951, Walter Wanger shot a gun at Jennings Lang. Nearly 70 years later, we don't know what Walter's intentions were. We don't know if he actually wanted to kill the man he suspected of having an affair with his wife. But we do know something about what was going on in all three of their lives in the months leading up to the shooting. And we know a lot about the immediate aftermath, when 41-year-old Joan Bennett found herself at the center of one of the biggest, most widely gossiped about scandals in Hollywood history. I'm Karina Longworth. And I'm Vanessa Hope. Today on Love is a Crime, we'll meet up with Joan Jennings and Walter in mid-1951, and watch as the final dominoes fall in the run-up to Walter's outburst of violence. And then we'll drop you right inside the media frenzy that exploded after Walter's gun went off, altering the lives of Joan, Walter, and their extended families forever. Joan spent the summer of 1951 working, while also working on her relationship with Melinda, her now teenage daughter, from her marriage to Jean Markey. According to my mother, who was in elementary school at the time, Joan's relationship with Melinda, who was about to graduate high school, was always contentious because Melinda developed early, was voluptuous and beautiful, and interested in boys. So Joan, no doubt, based on her own personal life experiences, was worried on Melinda's behalf and wanted her to be more careful and conservative, and Melinda was rebelling against that. Melinda also wanted to be an actress like Joan, and I think Joan felt some responsibility to help her the way her father had helped Joan get her start in a play. So Joan agreed to appear in a play with Melinda called Susan and God, in which they would play mother and daughter. They began at the La Jolla Playhouse in a successful run that led to a tour of the Summerstock circuit in New England. I don't know how much that helped them bond, because ultimately Jennings was visiting Joan on the road, 
and Melinda did have a sense that their relationship was going on. But Jennings was nice to Melinda, so apparently she didn't mind. Even if Joan's 17-year-old daughter suspected that something might be going on between her mother and her mother's agent, it wouldn't have been unusual for Melinda to see him and Joan together. At this point, Jennings Lang was a family friend. One interesting aspect to the fact that Jennings and Joan had an affair is that as married couples, Joan, Walter, Jennings, and Pamela all socialized together. They were friends. They would go to dinner at each other's houses, go out to restaurants and clubs. In her memoir, The Bennett Playbill, published in 1970, Joan would address her relationship with Jennings Lang more directly than she ever did in any other public venue. But even then, this woman who was trained extremely well by Hollywood publicists from a very young age leaves much open to interpretation. She does make it clear that at one point, while Walter was out of town, likely in Europe trying to resurrect his career, Joan became, quote, stricken with a sudden illness. Joan is very vague about dates in her book, especially concerning this period. Reading between the lines, it sounds like her hospitalization happened after she returned from Summerstock with Melinda in the fall of 1951, and this is when I think her affair with Jennings went to the next level. When Joan's illness hit, Jennings Lang took her to the hospital and took care of her in more ways than one. As Joan wrote, Suddenly I was offered the sympathy and gentleness I found lacking at home. And I turned to Jennings more often after that with feelings that went beyond our business relationship. This is the extent of what Joan would write about her affair, and she offered no details about the cause for her hospitalization. But Vanessa has a theory. I have this gut feeling that the sudden illness that required a hospital visit was a miscarriage. Joan was 41 in 1951, which is an age when miscarriages are common. And miscarriage is a subject we really don't talk about, even now. That's why I think that Joan would not have named the cause of her sudden illness and hospitalization, and why the experience might have been really traumatic and caused her to invest more deeply in her relationship with Jennings. She was emotionally devastated and uniquely vulnerable, and Walter wasn't there, but her agent was. Though Walter was responsible for dropping the ball on his own marriage, he was dismayed to see the extent to which Lang had picked that ball up. Walter's resentment of young, handsome, successful Jennings was becoming increasingly apparent. One particular photograph comes to mind where they're at the Club El Morocco, Walter and Joan, Jennings and Pamela, and you can see Walter has an inkling for what's going on, and he's giving Jennings some serious side-eye. Actress Arlene Dahl, who got to know the Wangers while starring in Walter's French Revolution noir film Reign of Terror in 1949, would later state that people in Hollywood were starting to worry that Walter was going to, quote, do something drastic about Jennings Lang. Walter had allegedly tried to convince his friend Jules Stein, founder of MCA, to fire Jennings, something that would never happen because Lang was too valuable an agent and because in 1951, a powerful man's sex life was generally considered to be his own business. Before Walter did something drastic, he wanted to secure proof of the affair. 
perhaps to inoculate himself in advance against any consequences for a drastic act of violence. So he hired a private detective, who tracked Joan and Jennings for months. Now Walter had evidence that his wife and her agent had met up in New Orleans, in the West Indies, and at Jay Cantor's apartment in Beverly Hills. This evidence, Walter felt, would justify taking action. Well, to sympathize with Walter, what he was experiencing in learning about Joan's infidelity would have been emotionally devastating. It's like having the rug of your life pulled out from under you. The narrative that you believed in was holding your life together suddenly makes no sense, and you have nothing to hold on to, and you're trying to figure out what's going on and why, and maybe you're going about it the wrong way, just collecting details so you can get revenge. But that whole way of looking at Joan and thinking about her also recalls the fact that marriage traditionally was a setup where women relinquished their individual rights and property and became property themselves. So really, until recently, marital fidelity and monogamy had nothing to do with love. They were just a mainstay of patriarchy and a way to ensure that a woman was the mother of her husband's children and not some other man's. This is a motivating force in surveillance, treating a wife like a piece of property. I think surveillance is the wrong approach when you're married to someone and concerned they might be cheating on you, because it's a detective approach, a kind of who, what, where, when, as opposed to an investigative approach which really asks why, what was the meaning and motive, and allows a couple to acknowledge and discuss their joint responsibility and culpability. But detective details are a form of self-torture when you're being cheated on, and you're using surveillance to gather information, and that information isn't going to make you feel better. It's only going to make you feel worse. And that's really true today because the majority of affairs are revealed through email or social media or iPhone photos. And once you've seen images or read words of the person you love having an affair, you're going to keep replaying that in your mind. And it's like death by a thousand cuts. It's really, really unhealthy. Walter's detective submitted a report, which was found in Wanger's car the night of the shooting. By this point, Joan and Jennings had been using Jay Cantor's apartment for months. And we know that Walter felt Jennings and his agency, MCA, had helped to create Walter's humiliating professional situation. And here, Wanger's paranoia may have been justified. I think it's possible that Jennings Lang might have been working to make sure Walter's projects that would star Joan would not happen, so that Jennings and MCA would have more control over her career and drive more of a wedge between her and Walter. I don't think MCA had reason to target Walter, but they didn't have reason to help him either. MCA wasn't known as the octopus for nothing. They were the biggest, most powerful agency anywhere ever, and they really could have their way with people. So when Walter sat in his parked car in view of the MCA parking lot on December 13th, he had a pretty good idea of where his wife was and with whom. Armed with the report from the detective, he could have visualized seeking revenge. Or as he may have thought of it, enacting justice. The Los Angeles Police Department had named Walter a civilian deputy and given him a gun. That was the gun he used to threaten Jennings with and ultimately shoot him in a parking lot in 1951.
Exterior, MCA parking lot, Beverly Hills, dusk. Jennings Lang holds the door open to a Kelly Green Cadillac convertible as Joan Bennett gets into the driver's seat. Thank you for another pleasant afternoon. Let's see if I can't meet you again this time next week. Here's an excuse. Manelia's series about another Father of the Bride film with the same writing team. I think we can put the project together pretty quickly. Well, if Spence and Liz haven't grown sick and tired of me, you know, how much I love them. Joan's voice trails off as she catches sight of Walter a dozen feet away, walking across the parking lot, heading directly toward them with a gun in his hand. Get away from here. Leave us alone. Jennings turns in horror to see Walter's gun pointed right at him. Jennings puts his hands up as if surrendering. Don't be silly, Walter. Don't be silly. Two gunshots. Jennings slumps to the ground, blood running down his pant leg. Walter drops the gun. With the two men in her life immobile, Joan springs into action. She grabs the gun off the pavement and throws it in the back of her car, glaring at Walter. As we see a parking lot attendant rush over, lift Jennings into the back of the convertible and start the car to drive Joan and Jennings to the hospital, we hear Joan's inner monologue. I don't know why or even how I did it, because I've always been extremely gun-shy. As I look back, it's a curious thing to me that it was my father who always waved firearms around and threatened people with them. But it was Walter, a controlled and rational human being who'd never threatened anyone, who finally brought himself to the extreme of violence. I don't think he meant to do anything but frighten us. Perhaps the gun fired involuntarily. I mean, there were bullets raining in the gun. But I don't know if I'll ever be able to stop the terror of events from reverberating in my mind. The Beverly Hills Police Department is a block away from the parking lot where the shooting took place. So Walter was swiftly apprehended and taken in for questioning. And the detective reports were taken from his car and entered in as evidence. Walter was allowed to have not just one, but two lawyers join him for questioning, both of them top entertainment attorneys, Mendel Silberberg and Jerry Geisler. Geisler was particularly notorious. His clients ranged from gangster Bugsy Siegel to movie star Errol Flynn, who Geisler got acquitted in a high-profile statutory rape case. Flanked by this powerful counsel, Walter confessed. I warned Lang in New York in January I would shoot anybody who broke up my home. So are you saying you shot Mr. Lang because of his relationship with your wife, Joan Bennett? Yes. I saw her car in the parking lot, so I waited. When they drove up together, I waited for them to go to Mrs. Wanger's car. I said something to Lang, but darn if I know what it was, I was in no mood for listening. Joan was questioned, too. Joan wouldn't publicly acknowledge having had anything other than a business relationship with Lang until her autobiography, published nearly 20 years later. On the night of December 13, 1951, Joan did what Hollywood stars had been trained to do for nearly 30 years. Deny, deflect, and defer to one's press agent. As soon as Jennings was admitted at the hospital... Joan called Maggie Ettinger, her close friend and publicist. 
Maggie was with Joan when the Beverly Hills chief of police showed up to escort her to the police station for questioning. But the publicist was not allowed inside the interrogation room. There's an old joke about Hollywood that press agents like Ettinger were really suppress agents, meaning it was their job to keep their clients out of the press. But that December night, Beverly Hills police would make sure Maggie Ettinger wasn't allowed to perform suppression services for Joan Bennett. Joan was told she was a material witness and was subjected to an examination that she described as rude and tough. Whatever the chief expected, a teary confession, an outburst of anger, Joan failed to take the bait. Ever the consummate professional and repressed 1950s woman, she refused to lose control, even if she was boiling inside. Then the chief tried to use her veneer of calm against her. You're pretty cool about all this, aren't you? Go right ahead. Barbecue me on both sides. If you think I'm going to break into hysterics for your benefit, you're very much mistaken. The chief then told Joan she needed to talk to the district attorney before they would let her go home. Instead of bringing the DA to Joan, the chief took Joan to him. The police chief led me directly into the jaws of the press. He thereby gathered no little publicity for himself. When Joan was finally released from custody, she went home with Maggie Edinger. At Maggie's house, a supportive crew formed, including Joan's ex-husband, Jean Markey, and gossip queen Luella Parsons, who wrote about Joan sympathetically in the days and weeks to come. Luella was an exception. For the most part, the media feeding frenzy that surrounded the shooting and its aftermath damaged Joan and her daughters a lot more than the man who had actually shot the gun, or the man who was shot. The morning after the shooting, Joan got up at dawn to collect the newspaper before her daughters could see it. It was good that she did, given that the cover of the usually conservative Los Angeles Times that morning was quite lurid, and their mom was singled out for her role in the events of the previous night in a headline, printed in the size of font usually only seen for the outbreak of a war. Joan Bennett sees mate shoot agent. So right from the beginning... Of the three adults in this triangle, which erupted at a time when the idea of naming names was fraught with life-or-death consequences, only Joan Bennett's name was named by the local paper of record. That there was a triangle was emphasized by the triangular placement of three photos above the fold. A vertical shot of a pursed-lipped Joan leaving the police station, a small inset of Walter with attorney Jerry Geisler, and, most shockingly, a shot of an unconscious Jennings Lang splayed out on the operating table. As Rocky Lang recalls, My dad was taken to Midway Hospital, and it became a big deal, and, you know, his wife was pulled out of a restaurant, and she came, and there are shots of him, you know, on the gurney with the bloody blankets and him in the hospital. And, and you know, it's it pretty gnarly. He got shot in an in a artery, so he had a tremendous amount of blood loss. And if it, from what I was told that, you know, if it had been any, any different, you know, he could have died of blood loss and gone into shock. But he didn't. So he survived. It was very newsworthy 
This is Jay Cantor. And I think because a gun was used, it became fairly well known where other romances around town usually were kept very quiet. You know, Walter shooting Jennings Lang in a parking lot in broad daylight and then turning himself in was just not the way these kinds of things would be handled in Hollywood. This is Matthew Bernstein. I mean, Hollywood was full of adulterous affairs, but they were they were kept quiet. They might be open secrets, but people maintained appearances of propriety unless they couldn't. There hadn't been a scandal quite like this in Hollywood since the silent era, when portly comedian Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle was tried three times and acquitted of manslaughter after he had been accused of allegedly assaulting a starlet at a party in a San Francisco hotel room. In the wake of several incidents in the 20s involving stars, sex, and death, Hollywood instituted a system of self-censorship and self-policing, through which the media worked with the studios to keep a lot of bad behavior quiet. There had been scandals in the 30s and 40s, but this scandal was different because it combined both sex and potentially murderous violence. And it exploded so quickly, reaching the media before any powerful representatives could step in and control the narrative. It didn't help that Joan's agent was part of the scandal and was recuperating from surgery when Joan needed help the most. As she had so many times before, it now became incumbent on Joan to take back control of a situation in order to protect her family. Joan did her best, but this situation would prove to be much more challenging than anything she had experienced before. Joan made her first statements on the shooting, mere hours after it happened, to Luella Parsons. Luella had been around forever, and as far back as the scandals of the 1920s, like the Arbuckle trials, she had been a cheerleader for the industry, using her column to sacrifice the occasional lamb in order to protect the industry as a whole. This agenda of Luella's comes through loud and clear in her first column about the shooting, in which she positioned Joan as an upstanding member of Hollywood society who was shocked, shocked, at her husband's lack of impulse control. To think that I should be the one to bring all this terrible publicity on Hollywood. Walter's jealousy of Jennings Lang is so absurd it borders on temporary derangement. Nobody knows better than you, Luella, the necessity of my having to work now to support my children. Joan's next attempt to control the narrative came the day after the shooting, when she convened a press event in her bedroom at the Holmby Hills house. Before a crowd of newspaper reporters and TV cameramen, she read a prepared statement. I hope that Walter will not be blamed too much. He has been very unhappy and upset for many months because of money worries, and because of his present bankruptcy proceedings, which threatened to wipe out every penny he ever made during his long and successful career as a producer. 
We have lived together in my Homeby Hills home for some 11 years with our children who love Walter dearly. I feel confident that Walter would never have given voice to the suspicions expressed by him in the newspapers were it not for the fact that he has been so mentally upset with the complexities of the financial burden he has been carrying for such a long time. Knowing Hollywood as I do, knowing how good, wholesome and sincere by far in a way, a majority of motion picture people are, I want to express my deep regret that this incident will add to the opinions entertained by so many. This statement was vetted by Joan's newly hired lawyer, Grant Cooper. But here, Joan made a couple of unforced errors that would color how her relationship with Walter was depicted in the press going forward. She referred to our children but otherwise, the statement made it seem like the children were the only things they shared. She referred to his bankruptcy proceedings and my Holmby Hills home, as though her husband were a boarder there. Remember, this was 1951, a time when extremely traditional ideas about gender roles were in vogue. In that climate, you can imagine men in Hollywood and all over the country— Reading this in the morning paper and sympathizing with how small Walter must have felt, trying to scrape together pennies to pay his debts while living in a massive home that his wife thought of as hers. And you can start to understand how, in the press coverage going forward, it would be Joan who would come to look like the villain and Walter the gun-toting hero. Newspapers ran stories about Joan being an adulterous woman and illustrated them with images from her role in the Macomber affair, where she's a particularly mean, emasculating woman having an affair with Gregory Peck. Walter did not receive the same treatment in the press. He was spoken about in ways suggesting that he was wronged and that he was a great movie maker and that he'd get through it. If you were conservative, as Hedda Hopper was, you heap it on Joan. So she really had some interesting words like, Wanger spent a fortune on making Joan a star. Then he lost his money. Now he's lost his home. So it's all about him and giving him credit for everything about Joan, as if Joan is nothing without Walter and had nothing of note on her own. Joan was at a disadvantage because she was not under contract to any studio, so she didn't have built-in institutional protection. Fortunately, Jennings Lang's recovery came within a few days he made a statement that must place him amongst history's most forgiving victims. I'm bewildered by the unfortunate and unprovoked event that has occurred. I've represented Miss Bennett for many years as her agent and can only state that Walter Wanger misconstrued what was solely a business relationship. Since there are families and children concerned, I hope this whole regrettable incident can be forgotten as quickly as possible. Jennings would decline to press charges against Walter. It was up to the district attorney to decide where to go from there. The night of the shooting, Walter was booked on suspicion of assault with a deadly weapon with intent to commit murder, a charge that carried a prison sentence of up to 14 years. He spent one night in jail and then was freed on bond. 
Harold Marish, who was one of Walter's bosses at Monogram, posted his $5,000 bail, and Walter's life returned to something like normal in the months between the shooting and his prison sentence. He continued to be welcomed to dinner at the Bogart's house. He attended screenings. Someone sent him a sharpshooter's medal, and he joked about where he had hit Jennings. He definitely embraced the raw romantic glory of you catch the man screwing your wife and you shoot his balls off. After spending Christmas with his family, Walter moved out to stay with actress Jane Greer and her husband. Every morning, he'd read headlines about himself with glee. He pulled the trigger, and now he was back from the dead. Many of Walter's friends were shocked by what he had done. It seemed totally inconsistent with his personality. He was almost giddy about his accomplishment. Greer remembered that on the day Walter arrived at her house, all he wanted to talk about was where the bullet had landed. Listen, tell me the truth. Where did I hit him? No one will tell me. Did I hit what I was aiming for? In January 1952, Wanger pled not guilty by reason of temporary insanity to the charge of assault with a deadly weapon with intent to commit murder. He had fired the gun, he said, in a bluish flash through a violet haze. But over the next few months, before the trial could begin, Wanger's high-powered lawyer, Jerry Geisler, persuaded him to waive his right to a jury trial and plead guilty to the lesser charge of assault with a deadly weapon. The judge reduced the charges against Walter and sentenced him to four months at what was called an honor farm, essentially a minimum security prison at which most inmates were given agricultural labor jobs. Four months would have been a light sentence for a man initially suspected of having intended to murder his victim, but it was a remarkably harsh punishment for a man who had once been one of the most powerful in movies. And for a Geisler client, the fact that there was any jail time at all was the equivalent of a harsh rebuke. Still, Judge Harry J. Board was almost apologetic in handing down his sentence, saying he understood that there was, quote, some great provocation for the shooting caused by rumor and gossip, but added, the court's hands are tied. Provocation is not a defense. Joan wasn't in the courtroom when Walter was sentenced. When a reporter asked her how she felt about the judge's statement that her husband had great provocation for shooting Lang, she said, my opinion is immaterial. I found that sad, but the reality was that culturally and in the story of her life, her opinion in a way, was immaterial because you could argue that the whole feud was between the men and it was as if Joan didn't exist, both in the act of the shooting and after the fact. They certainly weren't thinking about her. Walter, for his part, accepted his fate with grace. In future letters from lockup, Walter referred to himself as a guest of the USA. He joked that he was on location and that the honor farm was just like Palm Springs, but with no agents. That last line was like something out of a Billy Wilder film. 
Of course, Walter was a guest of the USA because of a situation that ended up depicted in a Billy Wilder film. Joan Bennett and Walter Wanger's film noir lives were now dancing close to farce, at least if you believed Walter's bubbly postcards from prison. But as we'll see in our next episode, the worst moments at the honor farm filled Walter with both resolve and inspiration, which would become key in the subsequent years during the final act of his career. Even though he spent time behind bars, there was a sense that Walter was sort of liberated by the shooting. His attitude, before the honor farm and in his letters from there, give off the vibe that he was feeling good about himself, that he had taken his manhood back. Why does the world work this way? But I think the act of taking revenge as it was seen, man to man, standing up for himself and his woman and his marriage and his children, empowered Walter and improved his career and his standing among his peers who all bailed him out and helped him in ways that would never happen for Joan. The truth is, both Jennings Lang's and Walter Wanger's reputations may have been enhanced by the shooting in a way that Joan Bennett's definitely was not. I think that Joan suffered for it in many ways more than my father suffered for it. This is Rocky Lang. Because she was a movie star, and she had an answer to that. This was on the front page of the LA Times and all over the place. And it's a tough recovery because people were always looking to Hollywood to show how corrupt they were, morally corrupt, bankrupt, and all that. So this was a type of story that um, in any other part of life, basically, if it was the plumber or the electrician or whatnot, it has is a happening that went on you know, fairly frequently in society. But because of Hollywood, it became a big deal, and there had a, people had an answer to it. Um, fortunately, my father uh, was protected by Lou Wasserman, and he continued to work, and he continued to have a great career. The shooting and the need for intense damage control put an end to any kind of relationship between Joan and Jennings, personal or professional. Certainly nothing ever happened, you know, after that. I mean, that was over with and done. And shortly thereafter, my dad's wife died. When I said that, that Joan suffered more than my father suffered, I mean that my dad's career really didn't change very much. He didn't lose clients. He went on. And so did Walter. Next time on Love is a Crime, we'll talk about how Walter Wanger used his time in prison as a launching pad for a comeback peaking with an Oscar-winning movie, inspired in part by his experience with the justice system. Then, we'll watch as Wanger pours all of this newly acquired power into one of the most fascinating, most disastrous movie productions of all time, the Elizabeth Taylor-starring Cleopatra. Love is a Crime is a Vanity Fair presentation in partnership with Cadence 13. Executive produced, created, written, and hosted by Vanessa Hope and Karina Longworth. Starring Zoe Deschanel as Joan Bennett, John Hamm as Walter Wanger, Griffin Dunn as Jennings Lang, and Brian Comstock as the police chief. 
Our executive producer is Chris Corcoran, and our showrunner is Jacqueline Jamjum. Production support provided by Nico Steele, Julia Doyle, Tony Mantia, and Lindsay D. Schoenholtz. Location sound by Caleb A. Mose, Hope Paul, and Alaric S. Campbell. Theme music by Lionel Cohen and Vibes. Audio produced and supervised by Shelby Comstock Britton and mixed by Gintis Norvilla and Rainhouse. Special thanks to Katie Rich from Vanity Fair and Julie Shen and Kelly Bales from Condé Nast. Love is a Crime was written by Vanessa Hope and Karina Longworth, who consulted the following published sources in researching this episode. The Bennetts, An Acting Family, by Brian Kello. Published by the University Press of Kentucky. Used by permission from the University Press of Kentucky. Walter Wanger, Hollywood Independent, by Matthew Bernstein. Published by the University of Minnesota Press. Used by permission from University of Minnesota Press. The Bennett Playbill, by Joan Bennett. Published by Holt, Reinhardt, and Winston. Used by permission of Henry Holton Company, LLC, the Joan Bennett Estate, and the Lois Kibbe Estate. This episode also includes interviews with Matthew Bernstein, Rocky Lang, and Jay Cantor. Fact-checking by Laura Bullard.